Simon Eustace et peccator. That's what Martin Luther cried when he discovered the doctrine of justification by faith. I'm both at the same time righteous and a sinner. Well, good evening, church. If you don't know me, my name's Damien. I'm a youth and community group leader here at City Reach. And you know, when Martin Luther cried, simul justus et peccator, it wasn't some random phrase that just popped into his head, but rather God had been working in Luther's life, bringing him to this ecstatic realization. As you see, as a young man, Luther was caught in a severe storm where a bolt of lightning struck the ground next to him, causing him to cry out, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Well, Luther survived the storm, so true to his vow, he became a monk. And while living a life as a monk, he plunged himself into the ascetic practices of, de of depriving himself of all forms of pleasure, tormenting himself day and night with severe hardship, like enduring freezing cold nights without a blanket, depriving himself of food and drink, beating himself. And the list of self-inflicted punishment goes on. And all this in an effort to try and show how repentant he was for his sin and to gain the love of God. But this didn't bring him any assurance that he was accepted by a holy God. Instead, it caused him to have this great weight upon his shoulders, not knowing whether or not he had done enough to be seen as acceptable in God's sight. So he became more and more terrified of the wrath of God against his sin. Then one day while reading through Romans 1 verse 17, Luther realized that it's his faith that makes him righteous, not the self-inflicted punishment he was heaping upon himself. For it's not his works that make him righteous, but his faith. That's justification by faith. We are justified, a legal term where God declares us as not guilty, we are justified by faith. While Luther was yet a sinner, he was seen as righteous, and his sins were forgiven, not because of works he had done, but because of his faith in the saving work of Christ. No longer did Luther have to torment himself with hardship to gain God's approval. He already had it because of his faith in Christ. And that's what caused him to cry out, Simul Eustus et peccator. I am both at the same time righteous and a sinner. And perhaps that's you here tonight. Perhaps you've come here tonight feeling like you're not good enough for God, feeling like that God is looking down at disgust in your sin, or feeling like God is disappointed with you for the lack of faith you've had in Him, or the lack of time you've spent with Him. Perhaps you're feeling weighed down by the burden of trying to be acceptable to God. And when you consider what happens when you die, perhaps you're not too sure if you'll go to heaven. Or maybe this isn't you. Maybe you, instead you feel like you're a good person. Things, that are go things are going well with you, and you feel like God will welcome you into heaven because you're a good person. Well, whatever your case, I'd like to invite you to join me in a journey through Romans 4 tonight as we discover the amazing doctrine of justification by faith. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, you deserve all glory, honour and praise because you are worthy, Lord. 
And we pray tonight that you will be glorified through this message that I've prepared. I pray that you'll speak through me and become all the more wonderful to us as we look at the doctrine of justification by faith. May your scripture come alive to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our passage tonight is Romans 4, where Paul lays the foundation for justification by faith. And if you have your Bibles there with you tonight, I'd like to direct your attention to verse 1, which says, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Abraham, our forefather. A common phrase if you're a Jew, because Jews, direct descendants of Abraham, would trace their lineage back to him as one of the key features of being a Jew. And then to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles is just anyone that's not a Jew, Paul says, Abraham, our forefather. And you can almost imagine the Gentiles in the Roman church reading this and going, hang on, what? Our forefather? So why is this important? What's Paul doing here? Well, if you cast your minds back to Genesis 12, and if you might want to put your bookmarks in Genesis, it's going to be bouncing back and forth between Romans and Genesis a fair bit tonight. But it's here in Genesis 12 that God calls Abraham to follow him. He tells Abraham to leave everything, go to a foreign land, and he will be blessed. And I want to pause there for a second. When God calls Abraham, where was he? He was in the land of Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. He's an uncircumcised man. Sorry. Um, He's an uncircumcised man living among pagans. And it isn't until we get from Genesis 12 through to Genesis 17 that Abraham is finally circumcised. A physical mark to sign all who are a part of the covenant community of Israel. Circumcision was a mark that separated Jews from Gentiles. And that's what verse 1 means when it says, according to the flesh. Circumcision was a mark in the flesh. So verse 1 is saying, what was gained by Abraham our forefather according to his circumcision? And regarding to Abraham's justification, nothing. Circumcision, a work of the law, gained him nothing. Otherwise, he would have reason to boast in his salvation, having contributed to his salvation through the act of circumcision. That's why verse 2 continues to say, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Circumcision was simply a mark to confirm what God had already done. As verse 11 says, It was a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. Just like baptism. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you holy or gain you favor with God. It's simply a seal of the righteousness you already have by faith. It's an outward sign of the inward reality of what God has done in you. So Abraham was following God in faith before he was circumcised. And why is this significant? Why is it significant that while addressing a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, Paul calls Abraham our forefather, then establishes that circumcision gained him nothing to his being seen as righteous in the sight of God. Well, you see, it's because for all intents and purposes, in Genesis 12 through to 17, Abraham is no different from the Gentiles. He's an uncircumcised man following God by faith. 
And you see, the Jews like to treat Abraham like he was this great dividing point in history, where God divides the Jews from the Gentiles, forgetting that Abraham was once a Gentile. So Paul takes this fact, and he skillfully argues in Romans 4, that instead of Abraham being seen as this great dividing point in history between Jew and Gentile, instead he should be seen as this great unifying point for all who believe. And while addressing both Jewish and Gentile believers at the same time, Paul calls Abraham our forefather. And then he continues to make his case in verse 13 to 18 by going back to, Abraham's, to God's covenant with Abraham, found in the beginning verses of Genesis 17, where Abraham isn't just promised the Jews as his descendants, but that he would be the father of many nations. Then as verse 13 in Romans 4 says, that Abraham and his offspring would be heir to the world. Not this current world, but the new world that is revealed to us in Revelation 21, verse 1 to 3, which says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. This is the destiny of the righteous. The righteous will inherit the earth as descendants of their spiritual father, Abraham. And this is sealed in the everlasting covenant of Genesis 17. What a future to know that we have, to know that if we have faith, it will be counted to us as righteousness, and the righteous will inherit the earth. This is amazing. Now, if you backtrack with me to verse 2, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. The whole doctrine of justification by faith is that faith plus nothing equals salvation. Martin Luther would say, sola fide, salvation is by faith alone. And that is what the Apostle Paul is establishing here in verse 2. Here Paul is smashing the foundation for salvation by works, as that will bring us glory and give us a reason to boast. If it was our works, we have reason to boast in what we have achieved. But if justification is all God, it leaves us with nothing to boast in. And you know, we as Christians, we can so often base our relationship with God on how we're going spiritually, basing our acceptance by Him on our spiritual highs and spiritual lows, which is actually a subtle form of once again relying on works. To be acceptable to God. So we as Christians need to be careful here not to mix up the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of sanctification. You see, justification is a once-off act where God declares us as righteous. It only ever happens once, and that's during conversion. Then sanctification is God's act after justification, where He makes us more like Him. And so often we can mix these two up, thinking that the once-off act of justification relates to the continuous act of sanctification, and that we might think that we've been reading our Bibles, praying, attending church, feeling like we're on a spiritual high, and therefore we're right with God. But then when that spiritual low comes, and we feel that we aren't living according to God's standard, that somehow our relationship with God is in jeopardy. But justification is a once-off act by God, 
which comes before sanctification and is received through faith. So no matter how your sanctification is going, no matter how you might feel that your spiritual walk is going, no matter what you have or haven't done, when you get up in the morning, you are at peace because you can say, no matter what I might feel, no matter what I might have done, I am justified in the sight of God. Luther said, a Christian is not someone who, fi- who has no sin or feels no sin. He is someone to whom, because of his faith, God does not impute his sin. But make no mistake, that's not an excuse for living a life of license. God sanctifies those whom he justifies. Luther would say, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. I'll say that again. Justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, justification is by faith alone, but this faith is always accompanied by works. It's the kind of faith that's a lively, honest, genuine and authentic faith, which inevitably produces good works. So if you're not striving to be more like Christ, if looking back over the time that you've been a Christian, you can't see the sanctifying work of God in your life, increasing your love for Him and making you more holy, it might well be that you haven't had saving faith in the first place. If you can't see the work of Christ in your life, you need to ask, am I really saved? Romans 6 says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? If you are justified by faith, you are a new creation. You have died to sin and are made alive in Christ. That means you seek to put away the desire to sin because Christ is worth more to you than the temporary pleasure that sin might bring. But if you, don't, if you, but if you do decide to be like Christ and you believe that he can save you from your sin, be assured that you are justified by your faith. You have no need of works. Works will just flow naturally out of your faith. Do you see how much pressure this takes off you? It's not up to you to gain God's approval. You don't need to be a good person to be justified. Because if you believe by faith that your sins are forgiven, you'll be seen as righteous before God. That's the definition of justification. It's the righteousness of Christ given to us, placed upon us like a cloak. It's as if you're a poor beggar dressed in rags, but then this king sees you. And he takes off his rich royal cloak and he gives it to you. And he says, here, take off those rags and put on my cloak. Then you, the beggar, walk around, no longer clothed in the rags of your sin, but instead walk in the glorious garments that Christ has clothed you in. And when you stand before the throne of our Heavenly Father, he doesn't care for what you once were, because all he sees is you, dressed in the clothes of his Son, Jesus He says, my son has taken the rags of your sin upon himself and clothed you in his glory. So come, enter my rest as an adopted child. The first couple of verses of Psalm 32, the psalm that Paul quotes in verses 7 and 8 of our passage says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That's justification. We are justified, made right with God by faith, not works. 
While we are yet sinners, we are seen as righteous because of our faith in the work of Christ. To use a mnemonic, it's justified, never sinned. Just as Abraham was justified by walking in faith, not through circumcision and following the law. For as verse 15 says, the law brings wrath. The law was just there to show God's people as perfect standard and to show them that they could never attain it. And if being right with God rested on their adherence to the law, there would be little guarantee of salvation because salvation would hinge on whether or not you were good enough for a perfect God who can't tolerate even the smallest amount of sin, placing you in the damning situation that Luther found himself in, knowing that salvation is unachievable because, through the law because mankind is inherently sinful. But if our promise of salvation rests in in our faith in the grace of God, the promise of salvation is guaranteed because it rests on on the faithfulness of our almighty God. So don't put your confidence in your works. Don't think you can impress God and help him in attaining your salvation. When we look at the life of Abraham, every time he took things into his own hands and tried to do things for God, things went terribly wrong. But when he stopped trying to do things for God and followed by faith, things went supernaturally right. If you turn with me to Genesis 15, it's here that God enters into a blood covenant with Abraham using the physical symbolism that was common when establishing a blood covenant. So here in Genesis 15, Abraham is doing as he's told. He's cutting up an animal carcass as part of the symbolism, but nothing's happening. Then these birds of prey come down to eat from the dead carcasses. And Abraham's like, no, I can't let this happen. So he starts chasing the birds away. But still, nothing happens. Then God causes a deep sleep to come over Abraham. And that's when things happen. You see, Abraham is striving to do his part, to to contribute in some way. And nothing happens. But then while he's asleep, God works. And the whole point is to show that it is all God. It is God who initiates a relationship with us, and it's God who maintains that relationship. That's why Romans 4 continuously uses the phrase, counted to. Five times the phrase is used in this chapter. Verse 9, faith was counted to Abraham. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Verse 22, faith was counted to him. Verse 23, it was counted to him. And verse 24, the big one, it will be counted to us who believe. The language here implies two things. Firstly, counted to us means it's not something we already have in and of ourselves. We are not righteous, we are sinners. Counted to us means it is granted to us by a third party. And secondly, it's not our doing, it's God's doing. He counts us as righteous. That leaves us with nothing in and of ourselves to turn to. There's no pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. There's no work that you can do to make God think you're a good person. We are all dead in our sin, and dead people can't do anything. It's all up to God and through the channel of faith. And you might be thinking to yourself, now hang on, Damon. On one hand, you're saying it's not of works, lest any man might boast. And then on the other hand, you're saying, I need to have faith, I need to have faith. And doesn't that make faith of work? I need to do the work of believing to be justified? And that would be a good question, but it's a misunderstanding of what faith actually is. 
Faith is a channel by which we receive justification. It's not a work. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is this. God uses means to achieve his purpose. And he uses a means of faith by which he grants us forgiveness of our sin. It's not like God looked down from heaven and went, hey, that demo guy has a lot of faith. I think I'll save him. No, God looked down from heaven and went, I'm going to reveal myself to Damien while he is yet a sinner that he might have faith in me. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, He, that's God, chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us before the foundation of the world. That means that before the world even existed, God already had a plan to save us by granting us the means to have faith in him. You see, God reveals himself to us and enables us to respond. It's called irresistible grace. He makes the offer of grace so irresistible to us that we just can't help but respond to it. It's all God, and he enables us to have faith. And it's this faith by which we receive salvation. It's not some random faith. If you, it's not some random faith. You're not justified by being a faith-filled person. If you're a Muslim, you have faith in Allah. If you're a Hindu, you have faith in your gods. Or if you're a universalist, you might say, it doesn't matter what you believe, but rather what counts is the sincerity of your faith. And the list goes on from different religions to cults who have similarities to Christianity. Even to the Jewish people who believe in the same God, Yahweh, but don't acknowledge Jesus as their saviour. All these faith-filled people are not justified. They are holding on in faith to a false hope, for salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You see, we are justified by faith, but it's not having faith that saves you, but rather the object of your faith. So whether you live under the Old Testament or the New, salvation was always through the same means. The object of our faith has always and will always be the same. Salvation is through God's saving power by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. Verse 23 at the end of the cha- to the end of the chapter says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his, his, that's Abraham's, sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, from our, for our trespass and raised for our justification. So there you have it. Abraham was counted as righteous by his faith in the Father's saving work through Jesus. So also, we will be counted as righteous through that very same faith. So if you live in the Old Testament, salvation was by looking forward to the promised Messiah, promised back in Genesis 3.15, who would save you from the consequence of your sin. And then if you live under the New Testament, salvation was by looking back at the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and believing that he has saved you from your sin. That's what makes Christianity unique and different from all the other religions out there. All the other religions of the world involve men trying to please God. Christianity is the only religion where salvation is free and mankind is unable to add anything to his salvation. 
And before we close, there's just one more thing I need to say. And that's the whole doctrine of justification isn't complete without it. Yet it's often missed. And it's this. It's not just the death of Christ on the cross that's the basis for our justification. The death of Christ is a beautiful, a wonderful thing, but there's more to justification than that. It's the life and resurrection of Christ that makes this whole doctrine possible. We as Christians can be so overwhelmed with the beauty of the death of Christ that we stop here, forgetting the importance of the life of Christ and his resurrection. You see, it's during the life of Christ that Jesus earns for himself all the blessings of the kingdom by his perfect obedience and righteousness. It's not just that Jesus takes upon himself in his death our punishment, but that he lived to provide to us a transfer of his perfect obedience and righteousness, a transfer of his merit that he achieved during his life here on earth, onto us sinners. Jesus' life was full of merit and we are empty. And it's upon the cross that the merit of Christ's perfect, sinless life is placed upon us like a cloak. While we are yet sinners, we are clothed in Christ's sinless life. And then there's the resurrection. Verse 25 says that Jesus was raised for our justification. The resurrection is Jesus' vindication, the declaration that he indeed was truly righteous. He lived a sinless life and therefore is a suitable offering to take away the wrath of God. The resurrection is the firm basis by which we are declared as just. If Jesus had stayed dead, it would have proven that death had a claim on him. And if death, and death only has a claim on sinners. Jesus remaining dead would have meant that he was a sinner, not a redeemer. But he was resurrected, and now he sits at the throne of God as our living intercessor, intervening on our half before God, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself and clothing us in his righteousness. This is justification by faith. While we are sinners, we are seen as righteous because of our faith in the saving work achieved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Saviour, making us both at the same time righteous yet sinners. If the magicians would like to come to the front, I'll close with this. And that's if you only take one thing away from this message tonight, take this, that no matter what you have done, no matter how far you might have strayed from God's holy standard, in the end it doesn't matter because you won't be judged according to your works. You'll be judged according to your faith in Christ. So don't beat yourself up when you sin, believing that salvation is unattainable for you. Repent. Turn again that your sins might be forgiven. For we have access by faith to the throne of God's grace. Guys, we are justified by faith, not works. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, what love you have shown to us, that you made a way for us to be seen as righteous in your sight, Lord. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he could do what we could not, that he could live a sinless life and then take the penalty for our sin upon himself. Thank you, Father, that when you see us, you don't look at our sin, but instead see us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that there's nothing we need to do. It's all faith in the one who did everything for us. What an amazing truth, Lord, that we are justified by faith alone. 
Thank you for revealing this to us through your Holy Scripture, Father. And I pray that you continue to remind us of the sufficiency of the work of Christ, that we might fall more and more in love with him. Thank you for your word tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.